Okay, well, welcome to class. We're going to go ahead and get started. It's interesting, we used to teach, uh, start this course in February, and we used to teach a lot faster. And when we did that, when we would start in February and go through these lessons quicker, we would get to the resurrection of Christ, usually right around Easter Sunday. And uh, now we kind of started later in the year, and we're going slower, and we've got the virgin birth that lines up with Christmas, so that's cool. Uh, it's, it's just a cool little gift that God gives us. But we've been uh, studying Christology the last few weeks. Christology is the study of Christ. Christ. Good. It's an easy, easy one to get you started this morning. And we were specifically looking at the virgin birth of Christ <clears throat> last week. And we concluded that the virgin birth is important, didn't we? <laughs> okay. Good. All right. Um, because if Jesus had been born like everyone else in human history, then... He's a sinner. That's a problem. He's only human. That's a problem. He's completely finite. He's a part of the problem in the world. Those are major issues. If Jesus was not born miraculously, was not conceived miraculously, as the Gospels attest to, we have lots and lots of problems, and this is just the tip of the iceberg. Because, you know, there's also the issue of, well, then the Scriptures aren't a reliable witness either. Is that a problem? Yeah. So, um, if you lose the virgin birth in your doctrine, you lose a lot. That's why it's considered a primary doctrine. It's clear in Scripture, and uh, it's vital to our theology as Christians. Okay? Oh, I need to make sure we're on there. All right. We looked at some texts on the virgin birth, and if you didn't get these at the end, you can jot these down. Hopefully you still have your sheet from last week. I suppose the mass need one of these. Anybody else need a, need a sheet from last week? Um, here are some passages you can write down if you didn't get them that reference Jesus being born of a woman, being born of a virgin, being conceived miraculously. All right, the doctrine is vital to the Christian faith. All right? Any other thoughts or questions on the virgin birth before we transition into the impeccability of Jesus? Hang on one second. Yep. We will talk about this today in the service. The message is on the life of Joseph. Looking at the... Uh, Conception. The conception of. Let's make sure my wife's okay. Uh, looking at the conception of Jesus from Joseph's perspective. All right. Good, 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 good. Okay, here we go. This is from MacArthur and Mayhew. Without a virgin conception of Jesus, there can be no guarantee of his sinlessness. The descendants of Adam are sinners because Adam sinned. The descendants of Adam die. Death can occur before an infant, or before an infant rather, knows the difference between right and wrong, and before that little one is even capable of understanding the gospel of salvation through Jesus Christ. Infant death necessitates the doctrine of original sin, for there is no death apart from sin. The sinless Jesus can only experience the death of his human body by God placing him. Uh, 
on, or by placing on him, rather, all of the elects or the world's sin and guilt, depending on what view you take of the atonement there. So, going back, without a virgin conception of Jesus, there can be no guarantee of his sinlessness. Is that clear? I hope that's clear to you guys, that very first sentence there. Without the virgin conception, there's no guarantee of his sinlessness. Okay? Um, because every human born naturally into this world is by nature, what does scripture say? Sinner, child of wrath. Right, good. All right? But the, sin, the sinless Jesus can only experience the death of his human body by God placing on him sin. We'll just say that. Okay? From John Frame, his sinlessness, like the other aspects of his humanity, is essential to his saving work. As a sacrifice, he had to be pure, unblemished, a spotless lamb. If he himself had committed sins, he would have died for those, for his own sins. But only a sinless life could qualify him to be a sacrifice for others. See, you lose the virgin birth, you lose salvation. Very important. So, let's talk about impeccability. When's the last time you used the word impeccability? Probably a long time, or maybe never. But you use the word impeccable, don't you? How do you use that word, impeccable? Something without flaw. Without flaw, good. Yeah, his performance was impeccable, you could say. It was a, a, a well-done performance without any noticeable flaws. Well, as it refers to the person of Jesus, we ask this question. Did Jesus have the ability to sin? When we talk about the impeccability of Christ, the question at hand is, could Jesus have had flaws if he wanted to in his flesh? <laughs> could Jesus have sinned? Was there an open door to sin for the person of Jesus? Or was he totally, completely impeccable, meaning that door was shut and he didn't have the ability to sin in his flesh? Now, it might sound like a confusing topic. It's because it is. And it might sound like it's not an important topic, but it is an important topic. So let's talk through this a little bit. Um, some things we can agree on. Jesus never sinned. <laughs> on this side of Jesus' life, as we read the gospel accounts and we understand uh, from our theology... It's important Jesus never sinned. The Bible testifies to that. We all agree? Yes. Good, good, good. Yet Jesus was tempted, right? We read about that. Um, Matthew 4 is the main passage on that, where he's in the wilderness, and he was tempted. We agree? Mm -hmm. Okay, all right. But God cannot be tempted with evil, James 1, 13. Can you tempt God to do evil? No. <laughs> Why not? Because he's, What's the temptation? He's, he's completely totally pure. Yeah. Does not, does not even enter into his mind. And what is sin at the end of the day? It's rebellion against God, God isn't it? And can God deny himself? No. 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 Scripture says very clearly God can't deny himself. Yeah, I think that's defining sin is the important part of that. Yeah. Uh, if you ask a little kid, usually what sin is, they'll tell you, oh, it's doing bad things. Yeah. And it's hard, you have to explain to them that basically sin is disobedience. Yeah, that's it. Yep. Until they understand that, they really don't get it because they think then, well, I'm a good person. Mm -hmm. That's a bad person. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and one of the things we try to communicate to our kids is when you disobey mom and dad, you're disobeying the authority structure that God has put in your life, which is disobeying God. So, okay. So if we can agree on these, we might feel like we're doing pretty good in defining this doctrine. Jesus never sinned. Jesus was tempted. God cannot be tempted with evil. And Jesus is God. I'm like, okay, uh, we, can, we can start to make some sense of this. Well, let's confuse the matter a little bit. Sin is an action by a human. Okay? Sin is an action by a human. Sin is a moral action by a human. It is rebellion, as we were just saying. Sin is a moral action committed by all humans. Do we agree on that? Jesus became human. All right, so now, now we, we need to wrestle with this a little more. Okay, so Jesus is God. God cannot be tempted with sin. Jesus is human. All humans sin. Well, how can we mesh these things together and define, give any kind of definite answer to did Jesus have the ability to sin? It can get a little muddy. It can get a little muddy. Wayne Grudem says, at this point we are faced with a dilemma Similar to a number of other doctrinal dilemmas where scripture seems to be teaching things that are, if not directly contradictory, at least very difficult to combine together in our understanding. And that's important to recognize. If we feel like our doctrine, our theology is very clean and understandable and there are no blurry lines, then you're probably uh, going beyond scripture. Because scripture should leave us feeling a little blown away by what's going on. The Trinity is a good example of that, right? If you feel like the Trinity is very simple to understand, dot, 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 A, B, C, one, two, three, easy. Well, you, you might be misunderstanding the Trinity at that point. Leave room for the mysteries of God, okay? But there are some things that we can say. We can get a little more specific. We can drill down through Scripture on this topic of Jesus' impeccability. But let me hear from you. Do you have any other any thoughts or questions at this point before we start looking at passages specifically? Well, so point three should be all humans, <clears throat> except. All humans except Jesus sin. Okay, we have a, a motion uh, for this in a second. <laughs> okay. Well, we want to be able to define it from Scripture, right? We want to be able to look into it. From the Word of God. Andy. So I guess I know that this is not a, a card that we should play very often, but it seems to me that it would be accurate um, when discussing with unbelievers to say there are paradigms, paradigmatic passages within Scripture that seem to point in two contradictory directions simultaneously, right? Yep. Um, God's transcendence and imminence being at the heart of all of that. Exactly. Um, well, Jesus' impeccability. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is Infinite and personal, and personal. All of, the, all of the quandaries kind of reduced down to God is both infinite and personal. Right. And that's... And that's, yeah. 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 that's the substance. So, I mean, wouldn't, would it not be accurate to say... This is how God has revealed Himself through Scripture. We will never fully comprehend this. We will never wrap our minds around this. The finite cannot ultimately understand the infinite. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, 
Yeah, absolutely. And if we start pretending that we can ultimately understand, um, then we fooled ourselves. We were self-deceived. That sounds cultic yeah. to me. One of the things that Francis Schaeffer was fond of saying, and so Jerry is also fond of saying, is that we can know truly but not exhaustively. And going back to what... Um, Boy, that is a bad marker. Why is it? Why is it still there? It's yeah. sinful. Yeah, that's right. Very peckable. Uh, so going back to the illustration Tyler gave us, um, we we have these areas um, or these doctrines in Scripture where we know what Scripture says, and that's within the box. This is how you did it, right? You can stay in the box, and outside is. Different directions, different heresies. Okay. Um, so heresy, I'm just going to use an H. Heresy exists all around what Scripture says because Scripture is abandoned at some point. But inside this box, and you can just, uh, I can just do this. I'll do an abbreviation for Scripture. Scripture keeps us from going into heresy. We, we let Scripture guide our thinking on a specific doctrine. Um, so let's go to, uh, let's think about the Trinity, for example. We know that Scripture tells us that God is singular. There's only one God. Okay? So these heresies up here that say God is plural, we stay away from those because Scripture keeps you uh, grounded in that God is singular. But we also know that God is Plural. There are three persons. Scripture attests to this. And so going down here where they say, yeah, God is one and there's only one person of God. Well, Scripture blocks you from going down there. And so it keeps you in the middle. And we know that all three persons are God. And we know that God is eternal. And, and we're kept from going into these other areas of heresy because of Scripture. Scripture keeps us honed in. Yet in here, there is a level of mystery that exists. Right? Uh, Romans 11.33. Someone want to read that? Romans 11, verse 33. One of my favorite verses. Who's got it? Romans 11.33. Okay. Oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable His ways. All right. So we... Fully believe all of Scripture, the Holy Bible. And yet we agree with Romans 33, how unsearchable are His ways. We know what He has told us. We can truly know what He has revealed to us, yet we can't exhaustively know the person of God, the, the being of God. All right? Good. Oh, we're still on. Okay. One critical question that gets to the heart of the quandary when it comes to the impeccability of Jesus. Did Jesus have the ability to sin? Well, here's a question, an answer to that question. During his earthly ministry, did Jesus ever act out of one of his natures in a way that repressed or nullified the other? So how many natures does Jesus have? Two. Two. What are they? Humanity and deity. Andy, two, right? Two. Okay. <laughs> because we learned those two natures don't come together to form a new nature, and yet those two natures aren't so separate that they war against each other. Okay, there's it's the hypostatic union, the two natures perfectly joined together. And we maintain that they are two natures. 
Did he ever act out of one of those natures in such a way that repressed or nullified the other nature? That'll keep you up at night, won't it? Because uh, there, there are ways to answer that that sound convincingly yes, and there are ways to answer that that sound convincingly no. Well, repressed or nullified seems to be absolute, right? Mm. So, in other words, what I would say is no. <laughs> but, yes, I, I can see how some scriptures would. Did he ever do anything during his earthly ministry that was 100% God and 25% human? No. Or 100% human and 25% God? Everything he did was both, all the time, all the way. Fully, truly God and truly man. That's kind of where the, sorry, it's kind of where the question comes in because uh, Jesus did all kinds of things as to his human nature that are impossible for God to do. Like, God cannot be hungry, right? That's not something that happens to God. Um, he can't thirst. And so if Jesus in his humanity can hunger without implicating his deity, the question is, can he be tempted to sin in his humanity without implicating his deity? And when you say tempted to sin, you mean, can he desire to sin? Because uh, defining, we're going to define temptation here in yeah. a moment. But, um, but there is a difference between, say, I'm trying to tempt That's Tyler to do something, and Tyler has the desire within himself to do something. Those are two different ways of talking about temptation. Yeah. But Jim, you had a thought? Well, some would argue that on the cross, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Well, he did do that. Yeah. yeah. But some would argue that when he did that, it was because he lost all of his deity. Yeah. Yeah. That's not what happened. <laughs> yeah, for, for a moment, the Trinity became a binity. Uh, while he cried that out. No. no. Yeah, he, he maintained his, his deity entirely throughout, throughout everything that he's done. He, ne he has never ceased to be God at any moment in history. Yeah, I've heard people say that in that moment, his humanity and his deity were separated. Mm. You know? Yeah. Things get, uh, things get a little gnarly uh, doctrinally <laughs> to make that argument. <laughs> Mr. Carroll, do you have a thought too? Well, I know some people use it uh, when he chased everybody out of the temple. He became angry. Oh, yeah. He chased them all out of it. God has gotten me angry. Yeah. Have, have you read the Old Testament? Yeah. <laughs> he, he did some stuff like that, didn't he? Yeah. He did. And <laughs> Jesus is God. He gave the law and he punished the lawbreakers. Um, so. Be angry but don't sin. That's uh, it. That's right. I can't quote it though. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4. The end of Ephesians 4. Yeah. Close to the end. Yeah. <laughs> 20 something or 30 something. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, let's see. More thoughts for us to put in our brains. At what point are we going to start looking at Scripture here? I'm sorry. I don't know where I want to park and, and look at a verse. Jesus was the only holy child ever born to a woman. Agree? Okay, good. Uh, in Jesus there was no sin. Agree? Good. A um, couple references for that. 
And the sinless nature of Jesus must be tied to his divinity and the virgin birth. He neither inherited sin, nor could he sin. So yeah, let's go ahead and look at these. Luke 1.35, who's got that one? Okay, Jerry Bowman's got it. 2 Corinthians 5.21, that's one you've got to know by heart. Who's got that one? 2 Corinthians 5.21, Jerry Carroll. And 1 John 3.5, who can get that for us? 1 John 3.5. Okay, so... Jerry, Luke 135. The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. For that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. All right, do we see the connection? Do we see the dots being connected there? The Holy Spirit is going to come upon her, and for that reason, the child should be called holy. Because the conception was miraculous by definition, his nature then is miraculous. His nature is distinct, it's different, and he is holy. For that reason, the child should be called holy. Can any other child be called holy? If it's for that reason that child was called holy, you better believe no other child could be called holy. All right. And for those of you who have children, no child can be called holy. Uh, we use it in, a, in an extreme sense. We call them holy terrors. Or yeah. <laughs> yeah. They are holy, with w. holy with a W, unholy. Yeah. Second uh, Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. All right. He made him, Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin for us. Jesus knew no sin. And remember, this is written after Jesus' life, Paul writing to the Corinthians. Jesus didn't know sin. That's a big statement. Uh, it's a simple statement, but it's also a, a very dramatic statement. He knew no sin. In 1 John 3, 5. I'll do 4 and 5. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. In him, in Jesus, there is no sin. All right. Good. The sinless nature of Jesus must be tied to his divinity in the virgin birth. He neither inherited sin, nor could he sin. Agree? Okay. Let's talk about the nature of experience. Jesus experienced all aspects of humanity in his flesh. These, experience, these are experiences he could not have had in heaven. So let's look at some of these passages to see what Jesus experienced in his flesh that he couldn't experience in heaven. So when we say he didn't know sin, there was no sin in him, we're not saying he was walking around like... Uh, some guy who didn't have a material nature that was just floating above the ground as he walked the earth. He actually took on flesh. He had two feet, two hands, and he experienced life as we experience life. Matthew 4, 2. Who's, who can get that one for us? Okay, Dory. Luke 2, 52. Luke 2, 52 is quite a verse. Who's got that one? Okay, Mr. Bowman. Mark 4, 38. Mark chapter 4, 38, Jerry Carroll, and John 19, 28 to 30. John 19, 20 to 30, Travis. Okay. So let's look and let's think about the nature of experience. In these passages, let's see what Jesus experienced in his flesh. 
starting with Matthew 4, 2. Matthew 4, 2. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. <laughs> wow. He was, that's a simple verse. But that's also profound, isn't it? He fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and he became hungry. You would expect God to never be hungry. Yet, he wasn't just truly God. Jesus also became truly human in his incarnation, didn't he? And he experienced hunger. Luke 2.52. Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Right. Again, you think, hey, truly God. He wouldn't need to increase in anything. But it, he wasn't just truly God. He was also truly man in his incarnation. And he increased in wisdom, stature, and in favor with God and men. Wow. Mark 4.38 Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, and they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? <laughs> so there they are in the boat. Storm comes along. And why did they have to wake Jesus up? Because he was Sleep, sleeping. sleeping. Yeah, God. Wait a second. He doesn't get tired and sleep, does he? Well, again, Jesus, truly human. And John 19, 28-30. After this, Jesus knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it's finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the spirit. Wow. Even there on the cross, I thirst. And then gives up his spirit. Put to death in the flesh. Wow. He experienced all sorts of things that we too experienced, didn't he? Okay. So if we get it, hopefully we have a grasp on that. You tracking with me so far? We agree on that? That he truly experienced these things? Now let's talk about temptation. What does it mean to experience temptation? The temptations that Jesus experienced were not inner desires to rebel against God. And this is what James 1.13 is speaking of. I referenced that earlier. Let's all turn there. James chapter 1. And I imagine it would behoove us to read more than just verse 13. Let's start at 12. 12 to 16. Let's all go there together. James chapter 1. And let's look at verses 12 to 16. Who would read these verses for us? James 1, 12 to 16. Gotcha. Okay, go ahead. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. All right. 
So, there in verse 13, we have two big theological statements, the second half of verse 13. One is that God cannot be tempted by evil. And secondly, God himself does not tempt anyone. Okay, you do well to remember those two things. They go together. And you can see when it comes to the person of Jesus and his thinking about his life on earth, how we can start to get our heads in a pretzel here. Because we just said he experienced all these things. He was hungry. He grew in wisdom and knowledge, favor with God and man. He grew in stature. He slept. He got tired. He was thirsty. He died. Yet, he is God. And God himself cannot be tempted with evil. Interesting. Interesting. Jesus experienced outer forces that tried to lure his flesh. The major passage, again, on the temptation of Jesus is Matthew 4, out in the wilderness, 40 days, and Satan comes along, or this is Matthew 3, rather, and Satan comes along, and do you remember what Satan was throwing at him, tempting him? Yeah, yeah, and it's actually Matthew 4. I don't know why I thought it was Matthew 3 there for a second. But it's Matthew 4. Um, yeah, tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Wow. Uh, and then again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory and said, All these things I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. Wow. Wow. How did Jesus respond? Yeah. Yeah, there's another one. The devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. It is written, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Tempting him, tempting him, tempting him. And he didn't just respond with any scripture. Do you remember what book he quoted from each time? My favorite Old Testament book. Yeah, Deuteronomy. It's a good book. Need to know Deuteronomy. So Jesus, in, in his heart, his inner desire, he didn't desire to sin, did he? We would have major issues if that was the case. You still got James 1 in front of you? What does James 1 say about where sin comes from? Our own desires. Yeah. Yes, verse 14, tempted, when he's tempted, he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. When lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. So before the action comes the desire, right? We, we've said very clearly, it's very obvious in Scripture that Jesus didn't have any of the sin actions. The question is, did he have any of the desires? Did he have the ability to have any of the des desires? And I say with an emphatic no. Because he is truly God, he was born without any sin nature, conceived as a holy child. He experienced outer forces that tried to lure his flesh, but inwardly he had no desire to rebel against himself. God can't deny himself. Other thoughts on that? 
It would seem that desire itself is not sin. It's only when we act on it. Hmm. What did... Uh, it says when the desire, when it's hmm. conceived, it becomes sin. Yeah, it becomes a sin. I believe the context of what James is pointing to, it becomes sinful action. Yeah. Um, I mean, because we've you, you got Jesus' teaching, Sermon on the Mount, if you look at a woman to lust after her. Yeah. Right? That, that lust is counted as sin. Um, coveting, one of the Ten Commandments. Right? That's a desire. Um, that's a sin. And so um, the desire itself is just as evil. Just as evil. Just as rebellious. What about the verse that says Jesus was tempted in every way? Like... Okay, yeah. So the t- temptation, again, there are two ways to think about um, temptation. And a lot of people, when they hear temptation, they hear it through the mind of a person, a human, <laughs> like us. So when you hear the word temptation, I'm tempted to eat that chocolate bar that I shouldn't eat, right? Tempted means inner desire when we use it that way. I'm really tempted to run over there and pop that guy in the mouth, whatever it might be, okay? Inner desire. But tempted can also mean outward pull. So... Um, if I said, again, I was tempted to go home and eat an entire pizza this evening, which is the battle I deal with every Sunday, uh, that means I have an inner desire to do that thing that I shouldn't do. But if I said, I'm planning this evening to tempt Tyler to come over and, and have a full pizza this evening. (laughs) He's ready, but, uh, there's not much of a fight for Tyler either, um, then that's talking about an outward pull. And you could say, Tyler was tempted by Jeremy to go eat a full pizza this evening. That doesn't say anything about Tyler's inner desires, does it? That sentence is exclusively speaking of my pulling him towards something that he perhaps shouldn't do. And so when we talk about Jesus' temptations, when he was tempted in every way that we are, that's in Hebrews, and we'll get to that in a moment, the context in light of who Jesus is, is that there were outer forces trying to lure his flesh. And he had no inner desires. Therefore, he never followed any of those temptations. He had no inner desires for sin whatsoever. Okay? And the temptation spoken of in Matthew 4, when Satan's tempting Jesus, that's the same word that's used in Hebrews 4.15 that we're going to talk about. Good. Good, good. Jesus experienced much in his humanity, but he never acted out of his humanity only. And this goes back to Nestorianism. Tyler taught on this, the natures of Jesus. When we get the natures of Jesus messed up and we say, okay, he had these two natures and they kind of warred with each other, then that means that sometimes he was acting out of his humanity and at other times he was acting out of his deity. Instead of seeing the two as being separate, but also being in lockstep with one another, being together. Because if we say he could act out of his humanity sometimes and act out of his deity sometimes, then why couldn't he sin? He was just acting out of his humanity. Right? So we have to be careful when we talk about the natures of Jesus. Jesus was able to experience temptations, but he was unable to commit a moral act of rebellion. And again, one of the guiding verses on all this is 2 Timothy something. 2 Timothy something. Uh, God cannot deny himself. God cannot deny himself. I think it's 2 Timothy 2. Now we need to look it up. 
Surely it's the only instance of the word deny in 2 Timothy. No, it is not. 2 Timothy 2.13. In its fullness, it says, uh, starting in verse 12, If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. God cannot deny himself. And what would it be for the Son of God to sin against the Son of God? It would be denying himself, wouldn't it? Again from MacArthur and Mayhew. Indeed, since he never yielded to temptations to sin, he endured their full force. Thus, temptation for Jesus was more real and more powerful than for any other human being. There are some sins in our lives. We all have all of our little pet sins and our temptations are um, the sins that we're more given to than others. And for those sins, it doesn't take much of a temptation, does it? If we're honest with ourselves, right? It just takes a little bit and we're following. Yet for Jesus, who had no inner desire to sin, think of all the outward forces, how much stronger they were when Satan was dealing with him in the, in the wilderness. I like, I like the phrase, the temptation for Jesus was more real and more powerful than for any other human being. Because those outward forces were doing all that they could. Our forces don't need to do all that they can for us. But they did all that they could for Jesus. Thoughts on that? Yeah, if he hadn't eaten for 40 days. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and he was hungry. Not for sure I could turn anything down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, I hear you. <clears throat> uh-huh. I, uh, I know a guy who did that, by the way, who fasted for 40 days. <clears throat> he was um, a young man at the time. He was a, a school teacher and a younger, younger believer. And uh, he, he thought, you know, God had led him to fasting for 40 days. And uh, <laughs> yeah, he thought apparently it was going to make him more spiritual. And he was in really rough shape uh, toward the end of those 40 days. He ended up losing his job as a school teacher. He uh, was hallucinating. I mean, all kinds of crazy chemical things happening in his brain. He ended up, uh, he was a guitar player, a uh, very good guitar player, ended up burning his guitar in his front lawn, um, I believe, without clothes. Uh, I mean, it got very strange, and uh, it, it didn't help him in his, life, his walk with Jesus. So, um, yeah, we need to be careful about these things, understanding narrative is not instructive for us always. Uh, the narrative of, of Jesus fasting for 40 days is not an instruction to you to fast for 40 days. Um, but what it does is it amplifies the reality of his impeccability. 40 days in, without eating, he was hungry, his humanity. He made it 40 days and still had the ability to reject sin, the deity, right? You see those two natures at work there, right? Did he have a choice, though, between sinning and... From Satan's perspective, sure. Yeah, from Satan's perspective, uh, it was, yeah, he had, he could choose to sin. But from Jesus' perspective, he was never tempted in any way. So there was no actual choice between sin or not sin. Jesus never had to make that decision ever in his life because he's truly, thoroughly, completely, fully God. 
And we might be tempted <laughs> to say, well, that just lessens the impact, doesn't it? Doesn't that make it like not as cool or not as real? Well, remember this. He was enduring the full force of outward, for, outward temptations. Satan and, and others who were trying to pull him to sin, the Pharisees, the Sadducees too, always trying to catch him in a contradiction or in a lie or something like that. He was enduring the full force of these things, and he resisted them. More temptation than we have ever experienced. He resisted. It's pretty remarkable. Andy. Well, when you were talking about the, the pizza temptation, yeah. right? It just, again, demonstrates the difference between God and Jesus versus us because Scripture tells us that if there is somebody that is openly sinning within our local body, that you who are righteous basically go together and be careful that you're not tempted by the same sin. Uh, because we're, we're prone to that. We, you know, um, you know, think of Joseph fleeing from Potiphar's wife, right? Actually, yeah. it's, it's actually a choice yes. on the part of one who knows the Lord to to pursue that temptation or to flee from it. Yeah. And that's and, and because we are thoroughly fallen absolutely. and called to be righteous. Right. Jesus is thoroughly righteous. Right? <laughs> and so um, would it ever if you were thoroughly righteous and you can't even begin to wrap your mind around it, it's it's, it's a mystery. But if you were thoroughly righteous would it even be a temptation to be, become unrighteous? No, it wouldn't. But for us who are born into sin, who are born with the sin nature, we are called to go against our nature in living a holy life. And we're able to do so once we're born again. It's in the air we breathe. Yes. Well, I don't think we can say that Jesus wasn't tempted. He didn't have that inward desire, that inward lustful desire, right? But he was certainly tempted. I think that he, we... He, he never had this. He had this. Yeah. Yes. But, I think in our minds we have the temptation, right, to equate ability to sin with um, ability to be tempted. So we think, well, if Jesus wasn't able to indulge in this temptation, then he wasn't able to be tempted at all. But again, with the pizza illustration, if you were to have brought a, a pizza here, it could tempt us, right? Our, our favorite pizza, um, wafting smells, everything. And then you, you take it away. We don't have the ability to actually partake. Um, but say Jeremy is just faster than us, right? He takes that pizza and he withdraws it from us. That doesn't take away our, our temptation outwardly, but the ability to partake in that temptation. So Jesus didn't have the ability to partake, but he was tempted outwardly. Yeah, I don't know if I followed your correction of whatever I was saying. Can you be more clear? Um, I just think we need to realize that he, he was tempted. Yeah. 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 He had everything thrown at him that could be thrown yes. at a person right. in full strength. And yet there was no inner temptation to succumb to that. Yeah, he never once thought, hmm, that sounds good. I, I would like to do that. Right? <laughs> Are you catching where the problem would be if Jesus thought, that sin sounds pretty enjoyable. I think I might want to do that. There's a major problem there, right? If Jesus had, had that type of inward temptation. And that's, that's the, the 
gist of the blasphemous movie, The Temptation of Christ, was that he, he was tempted both inwardly and outwardly. Yeah. Not that it makes a difference, but that's the world's view. Yeah, right. So I think maybe I would disagree a little bit. Um, I don't think you think Jesus any, wanted to deny himself? I don't think he had any <laughs> temptation that was born from within him, that started from within him. But I think that the outward temptations um, had an inward effect. That when Satan said, hey, here's this bread, and you haven't eaten this time, I think it had an effect where he's like, oh, that sounds kind of good. I would like to eat some bread. Or, oh, man, I could avoid the cross and get everything else. Um, I think it had an appeal, but um, he didn't act upon it. Because if you strip all that away, then he had no choice. Right? So do you think that Jesus had an actual choice to deny himself? Well, in order to, for him to truly, you know, he was truly human and truly man and, that, and, and truly God. And so, but if he didn't have that choice, then, then what? Did he have the ability to sin? Was he peccable? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. If, if you break down sin to strictly being disobedient, how could he disobey himself? Right. Yeah. Uh, you could argue anything he did would, would have been okay. Mm -hmm. And it was because God only wants to do good. God doesn't want to do evil. So anything Jesus wanted to do was okay. Well, opinion of sin is based on the standard of law, which God actually gave the law. Yeah. So, if God gave the law, how can he sin against the law? Right. Or desire to. Desire. Yeah. In any way. Yeah. So, pretty much what we have to come uh, figure out then is that we are human. We were born with the sin nature. And God wasn't when there he was go. born on the earth. Yes. He, did, he was not born with that sin nature. So we cannot take that part of our experience and transpose it onto his. He experienced all sorts of things that we experience, but anything regarding a sin nature, he did not experience. So pretty much we're human in that form. We just got to realize that while we're here, we're going to be bombarded from all sides. Yes. And then, But that's something to look forward to because we will shed that. Yes. We, yes. Yes. And then we will be in a true form as he is, sinless. Yes. We will be like he is. We will see him and we will be like he is. So when we think of nature and experience, our nature and our experience, very similar to Jesus' human nature and experience. He got hungry. He slept. All those things we looked at earlier. But anything regarding sin that we've experienced is not the same for Jesus <laughs> in his human flesh. It's not. It's not. All of that got, got, God went around all of those issues with the miraculous conception, with the virgin conception and virgin birth. No sin tied to the humanity of Jesus. He, it came in the likeness of flesh. And it, okay. it's not just that. It's that he could not be our Savior if he was tempted the way that we are. Yeah. It's, it's impossible. Inwardly, he would be, he would be, because, because we affirm that outwardly he was tempted in every he way. Would that be we an know. Yes. Sacrifice, 
for yes. for a holy God. Right. He cannot be, and and that's that distinction between God and man. Yes. Is that God God cannot be tempted. Period. Mr. Bowman, you've been patiently waiting. Well, just I, I don't know what value it is, but in all of our fallen states, there are millions of sins that don't tempt us in the least, no matter how they're presented. And that has to be some shadow of yeah. how Jesus dealt with that, I would think. I mean, there's lots of stuff that I just discuss here that other people do it all the time. Yeah. This isn't necessarily a sin, I guess, but if we were to say, hey, why don't you eat that chair? <laughs> Go ahead and start pulling it apart and, and well, consume the fluff inside. Yeah. I won't eat raw sea snails. <laughs> <laughs> no, no escargot for, for you? No escargot. Well, there's not sea snails. It's a sea slugs. Anyway, one of my acquaintances <laughs> yeah. was in Korea, and yeah. they eat a lot. Stuff that we you yeah. did not tempt us with. It's revolting, I think. Yeah. yeah. So the difficulty for us is to equate hunger and the opportunity that Jesus had to solve that natural need in a selfish way what he would have been doing by creating it himself, I suppose. But anyway, we just, we try too hard to explain what's outside of her abilities. Okay. Um, WGT Shed. Christ, while having impeccable human nature in his constitution, was an impeccable person. Impeccability characterizes the God-man as a totality, while peccability is a property of his humanity. That really cleared it up for you, didn't it? <laughs> okay, um, I said we were going to get to Hebrews 4, and we didn't. I don't know why we didn't. It must have been a reference I passed earlier on. Let's look at Hebrews 4 together. Hebrews chapter 4, toward the end of the chapter... 14 to 16. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. Someone want to read that for us? I got it. Okay. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time. Alright, so 15 is really the, the key verse here as it pertains to this conversation. Jesus was one who was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. What kind of sin was he without? Any sin. Any sin. And is your desire to commit a sinful action a sin? Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. You need to 
take every thought captive. That's our task as Christians. Take every thought captive and bring it to the throne of God. Did Jesus have to take thoughts captive? No. <laughs> Not in the same sense that we did. He had no inner desire to deny himself, rebel against the holy, just, and good law. All right. Um, questions. Going back to the virgin birth, why is the virgin birth regarded as a primary or definitional doctrine to our faith? Because the foundation of who Christ is, his humanity and his deity mm -hmm. in that sense, because he wasn't a true seed of anything, he would have had a conceptual birth created by God. Yeah, he was separated from mankind in the sense that he cannot sin. Good. Good. He's been tainted by the federal headship of Adam if he was born in the same manner as, as we are. Yep. And there is no salvation with us from a sinful person. There you go. So it's fair to say if you lose the virgin conception and the virgin birth of Jesus, you lose Jesus. Right? How can you explain Jesus' unique nature to your neighbor? Yeah. Not, not with that quote, right? <laughs> Say that again, Jerry. You can't explain. You said you can't explain it something. Oh, you can't, you can't explain it. You can just describe it. Okay, good. good. And it inevitably is going to lead to the Trinity. Yeah. Inevitably. Yeah. You, you cannot have the virgin birth of Christ without him being the second person of God. Yeah. He came on. Yeah. He's not another created being, Michael the Archangel, mm -hmm. another God. He is part of the Godhead. Yes. And that's why. Uh, <laughs> uh, your last, think about your last sentence. Yeah. You said part he is part of the Godhead. I'm sorry. Yes. Okay. <laughs> he, is one, he is one of the persons of the Godhead. I'm sorry. Okay. But, um, that's partialism, Patrick. Yeah, partialism. That's partialism, Patrick. <laughs> okay. I guess my point is, is that it's, when we're talking specifically in the context of our neighbors here, it is inevitable yeah. that you must distinguish the Jesus of Scripture from the Jesus that they yeah. believe in. Yeah, because... They're fond of saying he's our elder brother. And there's a sense in which you can say that that's good. Charles Spurgeon used that terminology. Hebrews 2 talks in that, that fashion. Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2. But we need to de define our terms more. He's not our elder brother in that we're just like him and he's just like us. It's a lot, a lot more complicated than that, isn't it? Isn't he our elder brother? And more beautiful than that. Yeah, yeah, and in that context. and it is not angels whom he helps. He helps his brothers. He died for those in flesh. He was born into the family of God. We're adopted. Good, right? Yeah, and the very important distinctions that we have to make. Yep. Does the doctrine of impeccability lead to a low view of the way Christ endured temptation? Tempted you too. Oh, Jerry. 
Now, I, again, I like that quote from uh, MacArthur and Mayhew. He endured a more real, more sweeping, full force of temptation than us. Okay. Okay, I want you to work on memorizing this. Write it down. Hebrews 7.26. Not the whole verse, just the reference. Work on it this week. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. What a great verse. What a great verse. Jesus completely holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Wow. Right, why don't I pray, and then we will uh, move on to the next part of our day. Father, thank you so much for the day that you've given us and this time of study. We ask your blessing on the rest of our day as we gather together to worship you corporately, that you would bless the song time and each and every conversation, and what we're going to learn from your word today from the life of Joseph. Uh, give us uh, a great time of fellowship, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.